Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. And let me offer you a copy of the Bible if you don't have one. We've provided them on the back of the pews in front of you or the back of the seat in front of you. And you'll find the section we're going to look at today on page 849 of those little hardback black Bibles that should be in arm's reach. Uh, I wonder what you would say is the best way to get to know somebody. Where do you start when you want to understand or know somebody new? These days, one of the most common places to start is Facebook, right? Or whatever, whatever the most popular social media site is in your world. You Facebook stalk people. And you can learn a lot that way. You can scan on whatever online platforms are public. And, you know, you can see what they look like. You can see who they hang out with, maybe, if they're posting about that. You might get more, more than you were looking for about their political views. Uh, you, you at least learn how they want to present themselves to other people who may be looking. You, you know how they want to be seen, at least, and that's not nothing. Of course, it's not that much either, is it? Maybe those of you who are less passive-aggressive actually choose to just go right at it, you know? And, and, and you prefer a kind of speed-dating-style conversation with someone where you very efficiently get all the facts that you think you need to understand who they are. You know, ask where somebody's from, and then ask who's in their family, and then ask what kind of work they do, and then ask what their hobbies are, that, that sort of thing. You can learn a lot that way. You play your cards right, you'll come away with most of the main facts inside of half an hour, and that can be helpful but you're still just getting like a curated, filtered version of who that person is. And it's all mostly stuff that's right there on the surface. You don't look beneath the surface that way, not to, not to what they love or to what drives them or what they're hoping for, what they're burdened by. Surely a much better way to get to know somebody would be, you know, in a perfect world, a chance to spend a lot of time with them over a lot of years. To watch them, to watch them, in real world situations, how they, how they really spend their time, how they really respond to disappointment when it comes, how they, how they really spend their money and show where their heart really is. That'd be better, wouldn't it? But, but maybe best of all, if you really want to get to know someone, what if you could be a fly on the wall or a little listening device? When someone is at their most vulnerable moment, talking to the person that they know and love and trust more than anyone else in the world, someone from whom they know they have nothing at all to hide, someone before whom they have nothing to protect, no image to maintain, someone with whom they have every reason to assume good understanding and goodwill and interest and affection, someone that they depend on completely. What if you could overhear their conversation with that person in their most vulnerable moment? Then you'd really get to know them. And this is the opportunity that John gives us in this most incredible chapter, John chapter 17, that we'll open together this morning and then over the next couple of weeks. This is the, the, the final section uh, of, of a section of teaching that we've been going through verse by verse, which occurred on the last night of Jesus' life, the night before he was betrayed and then killed, when he had these precious last moments with his own disciples to teach them who he is and what it means to follow him. But now in chapter 17, same setting, same urgency, same location. 
But instead of talking to his disciples in chapter 17, he's talking to his father. He's talking to the one who sent him. He's talking to the one to whom he'll return. He's talking to the one with whom he hatched this plan that he's now here executing. And he's bearing it all before his father. We get to listen. We get to learn. One writer describes this prayer as a kind of stethoscope that shows us the heartbeat of Jesus. I like that. A doctor's stethoscope held up to his heart so that we can hear it, so we can see it for ourselves. What, what does Jesus want most? What does he love and long for in this moment of truth? That'll be our next three weeks together, beginning with the first section of the prayer this morning, John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. I want to read it for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Did you notice that all these verses, these five verses here, uh, pretty much flow from one central request in verse one? There's one ask in this section of the, of the prayer. And it's Jesus asking his father to glorify him. Glorify your son. That's his prayer. That's what he wants. That's jarring, isn't it? I mean, glory, uh, there's not some sort of special meaning to this word that if you just understood how it was used in ancient times would make it sound okay for someone to basically ask for their own greatness to be visible to everyone else. Uh, but, but that is what this word means. It means pretty much exactly what, the way we use it. Glory is, is a greatness that's made visible. It's, the, it, it, it's, it's greatness that is seen and acknowledged and affirmed by those who are around to see it. That's what Jesus means. He's basically asking his father, please make my greatness visible. Because that's what it means. It's a little awkward, isn't it? I mean, I just set this whole thing up by the promise that we get a little window into an unguarded moment. And now you're kind of feeling like it's like a cringeworthy unguarded moment. I mean, like most of us do want glory in our innermost beings. And maybe we're even willing to admit that to someone that we really have nothing to protect in front of. But but it's kind of awkward to see somebody exposed for how bad they want glory, isn't it? Is that what's happening here? What is he asking for when he asks his father to glorify him? What is it that Jesus really wants? Four things. Four things this morning from John 17 verses 1 to 5. Four things Jesus really wants when he asks his father to glorify him. Here's number one. 
When Jesus asks his father to glorify him, he wants to lay down his life. He wants to lay down his life. Look back at verse one with me. The clue here is in the context. Father, he says, the hour has come. That's loaded language in John's gospel. It's been used several times before since the beginning of the book, and it always has a reference to the hour of Jesus' death. Back in chapter 7, Jesus is teaching. The crowds are responding well to his teaching, but not everyone. The religious leaders especially do not like what they're hearing. In fact, they, they don't like it so much that they rise up against him and try to get him arrested. And in John chapter 7, John says, no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, same setup. Jesus is teaching. He's getting more and more straightforward and connecting himself to God. And they're hearing it the way they ought to hear it. These religious leaders hear blasphemy because they don't think he is God. But still, John says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And now here he is in this room praying before his father, knowing now his hour has come. Now he will be arrested finally at the right time and not just arrested, tortured and killed. When Jesus asked the father to glorify him, he's asking the father to follow through on what they always planned to do together. He is asking for the chance to die so that his friends could live. That's what he's asking for. Already, already we're beginning to see how different it is for Jesus to seek glory from, from one of us seeking glory, aren't we? You see somebody else wanting to, to, to gain glory, you obviously don't like it. <laughs> And for good reason. I mean, you see somebody really trying to attract attention to themselves and you can see right through it and you know exactly what they're wanting to do. And you know they don't really deserve it. It bothers you, right? I mean, maybe in our more compassionate moments, we pity that person. We think, oh, how hard it must be to be so needy. How hard it must be to always crave worship, to need people to affirm you and boost you and build you up. Maybe at our most compassionate, we're, we pity them. Probably at our most honest, it's not pity, it's resentment. We're like, no, uh, that's not okay. It's proud, it's self exalting. Because in our experience, glory is kind of a zero sum game. For somebody to get glory, somebody else has to lose it or at least have it diminished. There can only be one champion. For my Atlanta Braves to win the World Series last year, everybody else had to lose. And for somebody else to win the World Series this year, the Braves had to fall shamefully short of our incredible potential. Glory goes to the one who rises above. That's what glory is, right? To the person who outperforms everybody else. In our experience, if you want glory for yourself, you are at the same time necessarily wanting something less for everybody else. But the glory Jesus is asking for is an upside down sort of glory. When he wins, he loses. He gets exactly what he wants when everything is taken away from him. He doesn't stand up tall on the tallest gold medal podium while the crowd goes wild. No, he'll be hung up on a cross and tortured while the crowd jeers and taunts him. When he asks for glory, he's asking for a shame that is more deep 
more public, more painful than anything we can possibly imagine. And he's saying, that is where my greatness becomes visible. That is where who I am is revealed for all to see. So what is it that is so great about this death he is choosing to die, this death that he's, he's basically begging for right here? Where's the glory? It's this, friends. His death is going to reveal once and for all how far he will go to serve his friends. If you were here from the very beginning of our series, maybe the language Jesus uses to start this prayer is sounding a little bit familiar. The very beginning of this whole section that we've been considering this fall back in chapter 13 opens with these words. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How far is the end? As soon as that statement is finished, John shows us Jesus rise from supper, take up a towel and a basin of water, and go around all of his disciples watching every one of their filthy feet, telling them, I have come to serve you. I want you to love each other like this. That was amazing. Who would do something like that for those feet, the feet of those men? Surely that's what John meant. He was willing to even humble himself and wash their feet. Oh, he's so loving. No. Jesus himself said two chapters later in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And when Jesus says to the Father, please glorify your Son, he's asking God to kill him. And when he asks God to kill him, he's asking God to reveal the greatness of his love for his friends. You want to know how far this love goes? You want to know how willing I am to serve my own? Look at the cross and that glory, that greatness is revealed. You guys remember that jewelry store commercial from like 20 years ago? Used to play all the time, no matter what was on. Had that American couple. I assume they were American from the accents and from the, you know, the jewelry store being an American store. They were in this kind of enchanted Italian square. People walking all around them, bustling on the cobblestones, flocks of pigeons flitting about here and there, bells ringing from medieval towers around them, when all of a sudden this man in the middle of this whole public setting screams out, I love this woman! I love her! You guys remember that one? He draws attention to himself. He abases himself in a way. That was humiliating. What was he thinking? He abases himself in that moment to make it crystal clear, as clear as he can make it, how much he would love this woman if he'd go that far to tell the world. I mean, she's at least as embarrassed as he is. (laughs) Friends, at least in part, that is the glory of the cross. You get Jesus up there saying, Look how I love my friends. I love them. My people, I love them. I love them. Look at me. I love them. 
you won't find love like this anywhere. When he prays for glory, he's not asking for a trophy. He's not looking for a gold star, job well done to wear on his shirt. He's asking for the chance to show how far he'll go to serve his friends. And before, before we go to the next point, I want to stop right here and speak directly to you if you're here this morning considering Christianity, exploring what it means to be a Christian. What do Christians think about Jesus? You need to hear it. You need to hear this. You need to know this. Among the most important things you could possibly know this morning comes right out of this prayer Jesus is praying. You need to know Jesus didn't die on accident. There were plenty of good historical reasons for a guy like him to die. He provoked all the wrong people. The powers that be had good reasons to see a threat in him. He was a threat to their authority. But Jesus didn't die because he crossed the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong place. Jesus died because that's exactly why he lived in the first place. His death wasn't the death of a martyr, but the death of a sacrifice. His death was ugly. It was absolutely unjustified. He didn't deserve it, but it was not unexpected and it was not unintentional. He had a purpose in what he did. He lived his whole life planning to lay it down. Or as he put it in John chapter 10, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This charge I received from my father. And that leads us to number two. The second thing Jesus wants when he prays, glorify your son. The second thing he's asking for. The second reason that he's praying like that. He wants to glorify the father. He prays, glorify your son so that he can glorify the father. Look back with me at verse 1. You can see how it works out, the logic of it. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You see what he's saying? When the father shows the visible greatness of the son, when he pulls back the veil so that his glory is clear and obvious to everybody, at that same time, in that same moment, through that same act, the son is pulling back the veil on the glory of the father. He is making the father's greatness visible. And when Jesus asks for glory, he's not ultimately thinking about himself. His end game is glorifying his, his father. Friends, Jesus is praying right here through the mystery of the Trinity. I've been studying this for most of my adult life. I still feel so intimidated by the teaching of the Bible about the sort of being that God is. There's so much more of it that I don't understand than that I do understand. But some of the clear teaching about what it means that God is not like us, that he is one God but in three persons comes out in these verses. The Bible is full of language where God seeks his own glory. Where he is really clear that in what he's doing, he's trying to glorify himself. But in a prayer like this one, we can see that, that when God seeks his own glory, it's different from me or you seeking our glory. It's not narrow. It's not self-seeking. When God seeks his own glory, it's the Father seeking the glory of the Son, and the Son seeking the glory of the Father, and the Spirit seeking the glory of the Father and the Son, and so and so, it, so on it goes in this cycle of glory that just feeds back and forth between all the persons that are in God for all of eternity. I know that's big. I don't even understand the words that just came out of my mouth in the way that I understand most things. 
But it's true, and it's what's told to us here. For all of eternity, God has existed in this cycle of glory. Three persons who have thrilled to the chance to spotlight one another's greatness, to see it, to make it visible, and to celebrate it. And in coming to earth, yes, the Son came from love for the world. Yes, the Son came to rescue people out of their sin. Yes, he did want the chance to display the greatness of his love for his friends. All that I've said is still true. But above all, what drove him was the opportunity to put the glory of his Father on display for the world. He wanted to show us what he has seen for all of eternity. That's what he's asking for when he asks the Father to glorify him. Let me Take the cross so that I can lift you up. How does this work? What is it about the greatness of the Father that we can see in the cross of Jesus, his son? Jesus doesn't say. I mean, after all, he's praying to his Father who knew perfectly well what he meant when he prayed, glorify me so that I can glorify you. He's praying to an insider. We're not insiders unless he tells us what's going on there. Thankfully, we have the rest of the scriptures to fill in this picture. Just for one example, to help us see what the cross shows, I'm thinking of how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, The cross, talking about the cross, Jesus taking on the wrath of God as a sacrifice for sinners in his death on the cross. He says the cross was to show, to make visible his God, the Father, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross, in other words, what does it show us about the Father? What is it revealing about his greatness? It's showing that he's just and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's showing us, in other words, how much he loves justice and how much he loves sinners. How much he loves justice. Well, the Bible is full of statements and stories that show the the, the power of God's wrath against sin. When he sees sin, when he sees people that he created live like they're more important than other people he created, When he sees people that he created live like they're more important than the good laws he laid down for the good of his world, when he sees that, he hates it. And sometimes we can be embarrassed by texts that describe God as angry against his creatures for their sins against him. We can feel at least like at a gut level like God ought to be above that, not so badly affected by it, you know? Like he should be more willing to lighten up and let it go. But But the Bible sees this exactly the opposite. It sees God's deep and perfectly consistent hatred for sin as part of what makes him glorious. It's part of what makes him trustworthy. You can depend on this God because he is absolutely consistent. When he sees sin, he's always against it with all that he is. Always. How we feel about sin varies a ton based on whether we're the ones who are doing the sinning or we're the ones who are affected by the sinning, doesn't it? I am not consistent in my commitment to justice. I'm I'm just really consistent in my commitment to me in my flesh. God's not like us. His love for what is right, it is pure. It is infinite. His commitment to justice is perfect and unyielding. And that's why we can trust him because he's the same. 
yesterday and today and forever. He's just always the same. And there is no more clear demonstration of his hatred for sin or of his commitment to make it right, his commitment to see that it is judged as it ought to be. There is no more clear demonstration of this commitment than the cross of Jesus, his son. Because at the cross, when God poured out his wrath on the one he loved most, the world saw the depth of his hatred for sin that's ruined his good creation and his perfect commitment to set it all right. The cross showed God is just. It shows his glory. And at the exact same time, in the exact same event, the cross shows us the depth of his love for sinners. Look how far he was willing to go to become the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. What Jesus wants us to know, it is not like Jesus was for us and he figured out a way to get the Father to, to, to look the other way. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. No, the Father himself loves you. Jesus wants you to know that. The Father organized this plan. The Father sent his Son because he loved the world. And the Father's love is what's on display when Jesus hangs on that cross for those who trust in him. The Bible sees the cross as the clearest possible picture of a love we couldn't even imagine apart from what it shows us. Friends, if I, sometimes it feels like, it comes to feel like to look at the cross as an example of God's judgment against sin, it feels like, like God should be above that. Like, like this is just beneath him. A loving God, why would he go through with this? Why not just, why not just look past the sin? Wouldn't he be more loving if he cared less about sin? It's just the opposite. If I were to spill your glass of water and you shrug it off like it's no big deal, that'd be great. I'd appreciate it. My clumsiness inconvenienced you and you let it go. That's a loving thing to do. That's good. But if I barred your car and wrecked it, if you needed that car and I couldn't pay to replace it for you, if you rightly couldn't just shrug that off, if you were affected by it because it mattered and you paid to replace your car rather than holding it over my head, would I look at you and say, you know, you were really a whole lot more loving when you just shrugged it off when I spilled your water? It seems beneath you to be so provoked by the ruination of your car or the fact that you had to pay for it. No, you'd look at that. You'd look at, you'd look at what it cost and at the fact that the cost was paid and you would say, no, in this is love. A God who shrugs off sin is not more merciful or more loving. That God would be less merciful, less loving than the God that the cross reveals to us. When Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son, he's asking for the opportunity to glorify the Father, to pull back the veil, and show more clearly than ever that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What did Jesus want when he asked the Father to glorify the Son? He wanted to lay down his life for his friends. And he wanted to glorify his Father. Third, he wants to give us life. 
When Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son, he's asking for the chance to give life to those the Father has given to him. Look back to verse 2 with me. He's just said, glorify your Son, the Son may glorify you, and now he gives us a reason behind it. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Here's the basis for all this mutual glory given. Friends, it isn't just what we can see in the cross, though it starts there. It's what we can see of God because of the cross. Glorify me so I can glorify you since you gave me the authority to give eternal life to all whom you've given me. And what is this life that's the goal of the cross? What is it that they'll get because I get glorified at the cross? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The cross was not ultimately for forgiveness. The cross purchased forgiveness so that we could know the one who made us and who loves us. A while back, I, I saw another pastor observe that when we try to get glory for ourselves in one way or another, what we're wanting, when we want people to pay attention to us, our quest for glory is always self-centered. Here's the, here's the quote. With God, it's, it's different. He says, uh, when, when humans exalt themselves, they call attention to something that can never satisfy the people they want to impress. They call attention to themselves. For humans, self-exaltation is a way of getting not giving. When I draw your attention to me, I want from you something. You don't get anything out of that. God, he continues, is the only being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is also a form of love. For he is the only being whose worth and beauty can satisfy the human soul fully and forever. When God glorifies himself, when his greatness is revealed to us, he is drawing us in to the most rewarding, most satisfying gift we could ever receive. I mean, we know how, how good things in this life always shake out, don't we? This world is full. By God's grace, it is just full of wonderful gifts to enjoy. Every day, your eyes open onto beauty and wonder that you didn't put there that are just spread out in front of you to enjoy for the taking. But we know none of them last. Nothing good in this world lasts. We're all just trapped in time. It's always moving only in one direction. And the good things that come into our lives always pass out of our lives eventually. That's why Jesus in John is always talking about eternal life, something that won't run out, a pleasure that won't be trapped in time, that won't be limited and doomed to run dry eventually. He wants more for us than more out of this life. He wants something for us that goes on and on and on and on. And now, right here in this prayer, when he's talking to his father, we're getting our insight into what he means, what he wants for us above all. Eternal life is knowing and loving and enjoying the good in this world that we can't possibly lose. 
It's, it's knowing God himself. Friends, the point of Christianity isn't ultimately to be forgiven of your sins. That is a means to an end. The point of Christianity is to know God. When Jesus asks the Father to glorify him, he's asking for the opportunity to show the greatness of God to the people of God, not just in that one moment on the cross, but forever and ever and ever and ever. Because when they know him, they will enjoy him. Taste and see, the psalmist prayed, that the Lord is good. God's glory is good news for God's people. Friends, let me put it to you this way. You knowing God is clearly very important to God. He made you with the capacity to know him in a way that that no other kind of creature has. And now in Christ, we're seeing how far he went to repair a relationship that we had broken with our sin. Our knowing him is so important to him that he's gone this far to make it possible. Is knowing God important to you? It's possible to think about Christianity as a kind of life insurance policy. At least to live that way, even if we wouldn't acknowledge it. You know, it's something that helps you sleep better because you know you're covered if you need it. But for the most part, day in, day out, it's just filed and forgotten. It's possible to, to look to Christianity for just enough peace of mind to carry on living as if knowing him is not a very big deal at all. Not nearly as big a deal as, as all those other things that turn our heads or stir our hearts. But, but when Jesus prays what Jesus prays here, when he went through what he went through here, it was to give us so much more than that. The purpose of his life and the purpose of his death was for God to get the glory God deserves from us knowing from our own experience just how wonderful he really is. And if Jesus went through all of that to make knowing God possible for us in a relationship of love and peace, how can we not make that the purpose of our lives? How can we not make the purpose of his life the purpose of his death, the purpose of his coming in the first place, this purpose that cost him everything, how can we not make that the driving purpose of our every day too? If you're not interested in knowing him now, you shouldn't expect that you'd be interested in knowing him in eternal life then. Because the eternal life that Jesus is talking about is is a life that has begun right now for all who trust in him. It's already started. We are already tasting in part what we shall feast on in full in that day. We are seeing in part, even if it's fuzzy, what we will see completely with clarity in that day. And if that doesn't capture your heart now, there's no life insurance policy for you here. You'll have no joy in that day either. I'm not pushing you here so that you'll hang your heads and think, well, I guess you're right. Guess I should have been more interested in knowing God. Didn't really wake up thinking about that. Not sure how I will tomorrow either. But you know what? I'll try harder. May as well just get on with it. I know it's important. It's supposed to be anyway. I mean, really, I'd rather be fishing, shopping, something like that. 
But I guess you're right. I don't want to disappoint Jesus. No, friends, nothing like that. To make the purpose of Jesus' life, the purpose of your life, means treating every day like a treasure hunt. It means you wake up looking for the goodness of God in your experience. It means every day you're looking for every evidence you can find of the greatness of this God whose glory has been revealed. The way an old catechism puts it, the purpose of your life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That means your whole life is a treasure hunt. When you open your Bible in the morning, you're not trying to get through it so you can move on and feel better about yourself. You're looking for treasure every time. When you come to church, like we've done this morning, to sing and to read and to pray and to listen to sermons, you know what you're doing right now if you're doing it right? You're on a treasure hunt right now. You want to see the goodness of God in a new way this morning, right here. Every week you come for that if you're, if you're fulfilling the purpose that, that Jesus has set out for you. And your friendships all over the church, you know the goal of your friendships ultimately is to offer up to one another back and forth, back and forth, day after day, Treasure after treasure after treasure in the goodness of God, pointing back again and again and again to him wherever you see it. This is, this is the purpose of your life. It was his purpose. It is yours too if you're in Christ. Take it up. Why not? You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Now, friends, there is one final, one final point I want you to see. One final dimension to what he's praying when he prays for glory. When Jesus asks the Father to glorify him, he is asking for the opportunity to come home. The Son wants to come home. He wants to return to what he had had before the Word became flesh. In the presence of the Father, he loved for all eternity. Look back with me at verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, he says, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here, once again, like we are standing right on the edge, looking down into a deep mystery that we cannot see the bottom of. We're getting just a tiny little glimpse into the mystery that is the life of God as Trinity from all eternity to all eternity. And I can't see to the bottom. I don't know how to understand every question that this, this verse raises for us. But let me just, for the sake of your own worship, let me walk you through what I think is clear in these verses and why it's such good news. Think about this. Jesus right here, at the end of his life, He's looking back on 30-ish years of life on earth. And from that place, he's also looking forward to what he wants most of all now. He wants to return to the presence of the Father where the greatness of God is most visible of all, seen exactly as it is and exactly as it had always been. See, when Jesus was born into our world as a man, he was human in every sense that we're human. Ecclesiastes 3 says part of what it is for us to be human is to have eternity in our hearts. But we're trapped in time. That's one reason we humans are always so dissatisfied. We always get to the end of one thing and just wish it to go longer. 
We get to the thing, we get the thing we thought we wanted and we realize it's just like grabbing at vapor. It just doesn't last. We live, every one of us, with this nagging sense that we were made for something more than anything we've had so far. Jesus was fully human. Jesus knew that on a, on a level that we never could. Jesus knew with the knowledge of what the Son of God had. And he knew what he was experiencing as a man here on earth was a far cry from what could be seen and known and enjoyed in the presence of the Father. He lived this whole life in the valley of the shadow of death. And verse 4 reminds us when he lived that way doing everything that the Father gave him to do. In other words, this, this man, he was, he was completely and perfectly obedient. He never once fell short of his Father's glory. This is a difficult world to live in when you see things the way God does and love what God loves. We, we tend to grow calloused and numb sometimes when we see examples of the strong taking advantage of the weak. And we're just used to it. Sometimes it just rolls off. He never did. When he saw religious leaders misleading people, when he saw them serving themselves at the expense of the people they were supposed to be leading back to him, he came at them with all the righteous anger of God. You remember what happened when he comes to the temple and they're using it as a chance to, 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 to get money for themselves? He makes his own whip and he just tears out after him with that whip, turning over their table, sending their money flying. That is what it looks like for someone who sees and knows what God sees and knows to live in a world where, where, where powerful people exploit the weak. Can you imagine seeing things the way he saw them day after day and never being able to turn it off? Never having some way to just veg out and just forget it? Or look at him confronting the tomb of Lazarus. When he comes to Lazarus' tomb in John 11 and he sees the pain of his friends at the death of their brother. John uses a very specific word. He says that he wept, but he says more than that he wept. He, kind of, he uses a word that is used for the snorting of horses. You're like a racehorse that's just dying to get out on that track if they would just drop that gate and let me go. That's how he responded when he saw death. You follow Jesus through his life and you'll see what holiness looks like confronting the brokenness of this world. Friends, it's exhausting to see this world the way God sees it. The glory of God is visible all around us in this world. That is true. But it is veiled in this world and neglected and obscured. And the competition for that glory is fierce. And Jesus here, after 30 plus years of it, he's just had enough. The more holy we are, the more we will long for heaven. And that's what he's longing for here. His prayer for glory is a prayer to come home, having done everything that was set out for him to do. But even here, it's not just a prayer for him. It's not just that, he, that he's done what he set out to do and, and now we can be on our way forgiven. So, so, okay, Father, please just kind of pull me up now. Beam me up. Now, do you remember what he said back in chapter 14 after he had just broken the news to his friends that he was leaving? He said to them, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to a prayer, a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again, that you may be where I am. The Father's answer to this prayer 
The prayer of John 17, 5 is the ground of all our hope that one day we will be with him where his presence reveals his glory without blemish, without any screen, always, forever with him. That's what Jesus is praying for when he says, glorify your son. In a way, this final prayer of Jesus is different from the Lord's prayer that Will prayed for us earlier. I mean, that was just so relatable, isn't it? Give us daily bread. (laughs) I need to eat. And I know I can't create that food for myself. And I've learned now, especially with inflation, not to ever take it for granted that I can buy some either. So give me the daily bread. I can relate to that prayer. That one's designed for me to pray. This one right here is different, isn't it? I can't pray. Father, please glorify me. Jesus had to pray this one. But in another, in another sense, this prayer, glorify your son, is exactly the prayer we ought to pray. It holds the key to what we're longing for most. His glory seen, his glory known, his glory loved. That's life. That is eternal life. That's what we want for ourselves. That's what we want for our neighbors. That's what we want for our kids. That's what we want for the nations. Father, glorify your son. Ask him to do it. Glorify your son among the nations, Father. In Afghanistan, in these little mountain hollows, they don't even know that your son has died so they could be forgiven. Glorify your son in Afghanistan, Father. Glorify your son for our kids. We pray they'll grow up healthy and strong. We pray they'll find happy marriages and fulfilling work. We pray that they'll live long lives and avoid terrible sickness. But if you only answer one prayer, if all the other ones could just pass right by and you only answer one prayer for our children, Father, glorify your son in their lives. Help them to see who he is and to love him. And friends, there is no greater prayer to pray for ourselves every single day. Father, glorify your son. Give me eyes to see him as he is. Through him, help me to see you and help me to know the one who is eternal life. There's your prayer. Let's pray it now. Father, we do pray that you would glorify your son among us right now. We thank you for your word that speaks so clearly of his greatness. We pray that by your spirit, our hearts would know it. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen.